0: 3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians and caretakers of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed.
1: This is 3CR
2: Breakfast.
1: Got news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday,
3: 7am to late 30am. Early
2: double.
4: Well, good morning. It's Monday again. Good morning. <laughs> yeah, Monday the 18th of November. Good morning. <laughs> morning, Patty. Morning, Ella. I'm Judith. And uh, it's great to have you with us this morning for Monday Brekkie. And it's looking pretty warm out there. What do you think? You checked the weather?
5: Yeah, the weather is going to be 27 today, uh, Drop back down to 20 degrees tomorrow. And then on Wednesday, it's going to be uh, a warm 30.
4: Warm. <laughs> oh my God! Getting down to the beach. Look, and a big, big thank you to be on Zero Emissions this morning. Always such a good show. Love it, and uh, great to to hear. Um, yeah, what's going on with them? But uh, this morning we've got a really packed show. We've got we're following up on a few stories that we've covered over the year. There's been some new things happening, so we'll be doing that, and um, and yeah, so a pretty packed uh, program. So we're going to, like after eight, we'll be speaking with Fiona Patton, who, um, uh, along with the, the Greens Party now, the reason in the Greens is put a joint co-sponsoring a bill to have a pill testing program, a trial in Victoria. So she'll talk to us about that later in the program. And we're also going to be speaking with Eddie Sinot, who's uh, written a, a really good paper on the uh, voice to Parliament and the problems with um, the voice to Government that is being proposed. So we'll we'll hear about about the, um, sorry, about how the voice to Parliament has been shot down. The, the Uluru statement from the heart, and something different is being proposed that's nowhere near, not even close, as good. So he'll be speaking with us at eight, and then. Um, Before that, I think we're going to be speaking with Maria. Is that right, Ellen?
0: Yeah, we've got Maria Strong coming into the studio today. Um, So Maria's a local athlete who's going to be at the Disability Sports and Recreation Festival this year. So she's going to be chatting about what she's gone on this year um, and what she's been up to. Excellent. And I think
4: Maria's done some 3CR broadcasting as well. So it'll be a big welcome back. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Paddy, you've got
5: something coming up? Yeah, I spoke to Damian Patterson uh, last week, um, who is from the Council to Homeless Persons, and he's going to be talking about minimal sta- minimum standards for rental properties.
4: Oh, I'm really interested in that. So many people renting now, and uh, yeah, we do hear some stories about what's going on there, it's worrying stories, so yeah, it'll be great uh, to hear what's happening there. And um, then we're going to be speaking with Lynn Fritchie. Now, uh, before you, uh, Ella and Patty, before you joined us on Monday Breakfast, we've had a couple of stories on uh, silicosis, a rise in silicosis among workers. So uh, Lynn's going to tell us about uh, how that's happened, what's occurred, and what's being done about it. So it'll be really interesting to to hear from her as a follow-up to that. That's uh, at around um, 7.30, I think she'll be coming. We'll be hearing from her and also for uh, again uh, the Great Australian Bite. Do, do you know where it is? The Great Australian Bite. I don't know. What are you, Patty.
5: Is that the bottom bottom of Australia? The big bite there. Yeah, it is
4: the south. <laughs> of, yeah, so it's that coast of South Australia, and it is kind of remote. So lots of people haven't been there, but it's this remarkable area. You know, beautiful seas, whale nurseries, and, uh, and lots of wildlife gorgeous and there's been a proposal going back now probably to 2014 to drill in the bite with different companies uh, proposing to do that uh, to explore exploratory drill and of course the community's gotten up in arms because it's a it's a great fishing area it's a great tourist area as you can imagine and it, it's beautiful and so the the and the and the waters are very wild so the possibility of uh, a spill there is just disastrous so there's been fights um, a couple of companies have pulled out. Current, the current company that's getting looking for permission is um, Equinor, and so they've just been knocked back their environmental plans. We're going to hear about that from Jeff Hansen from Sea Shepherd. And as we all know, um, there's been fires raging, in Queensland, in particular New South Wales. So we're going to hear from a fire ecologist uh, also this morning. But I think before we um, we get on to our program, I just want to acknowledge uh, the sadness that we're all feeling about events in Yundamu last week, um, just over a week ago now, in the death of Kumanjai Walker. And, um, you know, that story is unfolding. I was very grateful to Thursday Breakfast for getting out to the rally last Wednesday and reporting the voices of people and messages from Yundamu. So... Uh, That's a story that will continue to unfold and one to keep our eye on, but just our thoughts go out. And now, some music. voice of, of um, Goramal with Go Peru and um, welcome back to Monday Brekkie and we've got a very busy next hour so <laughs> just hold on to your seats and uh, here we <laughs> go so first up um, it's we've been very concerned everyone I'm sure has their eyes glued to the telly and listening to the reports of the fires in Queensland and in New South Wales as well We've been seeing um, the images and we've been hearing the stories of people and how they've been looking after each other and how they've been trying to defend their homes if if that's what they're doing or needing to get away we've heard about weddings in the midst of fires i mean the stories stories are incredible but i think generally we all need to be better informed so i spoke to professor michael clark who's the head of the school of life sciences at latrobe university last week and uh, he's got a long-standing interest in the impact of fires particularly on animals because he's a zoologist as well as a fire ecologist and um, he's conducted research in, uh, on the impact of the fire in the Mallee, Box Ironbark Forest, Central Highlands and dear to all our hearts here in Melbourne I'm sure Wilson's Promontory so uh, he's looked at that and he was also a, an expert witness in fire ecology at the Victorian Bushfires Royal Commission so lots of experience to bring to this issue. And when I talked to him last week, I just started by asking him what the study of fire ecology entailed.
6: A fire ecologist investigates the impact of fire on flora and fauna and on land systems. So for many years, I've been interested in studying how native birds and mammals and plants uh, respond to fire after fire, how long it takes them to recover, how they differ from place to place. We spend a lot of time in the field counting things, looking at the changes in the diversity and abundance of different plants and animals in the years following fires. I do a lot of work at Wilson's Promontory and in the Mallee in the forested parts of the Great Dividing Range, so a number of different places.
4: All beautiful places and oh, I'm dear, very dear fortunate, to the yeah, hearts of Australians. <laughs> if I were a research student, say, working with you, what might I be doing?
6: You'd be spending a lot of time quantifying the structure of the habitats the animals occupy. So lots of tree measurements and doing surveys of plant diversity and abundance. You'd learn a lot about changes over time following fire and how to read landscapes, interpret what the fire has done, how hot was the fire when it went through, those kinds of things. And you'd get the privilege of interacting with some extraordinary wildlife.
4: Yes, I imagine that. You've referred to bushfire season. What does a season actually mean?
6: I guess it means that period of the year when the bush is dry enough to burn and the really disturbing trend and undeniable trend is that the bushfire season is extending.
4: Seeing it getting longer and longer.
6: It's getting longer and longer and the number of days of extreme weather what we'd call extreme fire weather with low humidity and strong winds and dry fuels are increasing and are predicted to increase under our various climate change scenarios. Well established and indisputable CSIRO have got very useful maps predicting where the changes are going to be most dramatic across Australia.
4: Where are they going to be most dramatic?
6: A lot of the inland is going to change profoundly. There's hardly a part of the country that's spared. There is some complexity to it because as the country dries out, growth rates of plants in some areas will be less and so fuels will accumulate possibly at a slower rate. But to counterbalance that, the number of extreme fire days is going to go up anyway. So while there might be slightly lesser fuels in some places due to a shortage of water, the actual nature of the landscape will be more ready for ignition, unfortunately.
4: There's been a lot of talk about planned burns. What role does a planned burn play in preventing fires or does it not?
6: It won't prevent fires, but it will assist in containing fires and giving agencies that are trying to fight the fires greater capacity to pull up fires under moderate to severe conditions. But once we get into extreme and catastrophic, it diminishes to almost zero. So on days when you've got fires crowning like Black Saturday, during the peak periods it ran over the top of planned burn areas. We need to be realistic, and that's a real concern for me, that we don't create unrealistic expectations of false sense of security, where people think, well, this area near us was burnt just in the last year or so, surely it'll be fine when the fire hits it. On extreme days, that's just not going to be the case. The data are very compelling, and people need to be making very tough decisions about leaving early.
4: Yes, and that's what we've certainly seen in the last few weeks. How long does the impact of a bushfire last? How long will it take the land, uh, the animals, to recover from that?
6: really good question because the general Australian folklore is don't worry the bush will bounce back and we see that and it's extraordinary if you go to places like King Lake now and you look at the regrowth it's spectacular but if you look at the science what the animals and plants need we've been working in the Mallee for a number of years we can detect the impact of fires a century after they've happened they're still recovering a century later I go into areas like King Lake, the regrowth of mountain ash is really thick, but it doesn't get to hollow bearing mature age for centuries.
4: Right, and why so is hollow bearing important?
6: A lot of our fauna is dependent on hollows for nesting and for shelter, so lots of our possums and our cockatoos and uh, our reptiles. And in Australia, we don't have hollow-creating vertebrate animals. We are reliant on fungi and invertebrates, termites and things, to make hollows in our very hard timbers. That's really slow. We've done measurements, torturous numbers of measurements, (laughs) of how long it takes for a hollow to start developing. And our definition of a hollow was something you could put a 20 cent piece in. We counted thousands of Mallee stems. These are eucalypts. And we measured stems and we estimated how fast they grow. And there are no hollows in a Mallee forest under 40 years post-fire. So if you're a budgie or a cockatiel that requires a hollow and you've had a big fire through Mallee, new hollows aren't going to be emerging for 40 years.
4: It's incredible.
6: It's a lot of... A real estate, yes. a wildlife real estate going out of commission and so when we ask how long does a fire have an impact that's the capacity. Now some animals will rely on bits of the habitat that comes back much quicker and they're luckier but others are very fire sensitive.
4: And beautiful birds I mean cockatiel and uh, cockatoos. They're most
6: iconic birds that we love and think of being quintessentially Australian and the assumption that's wrongly made is we don't need to worry because these things have evolved to cope with fire they'll be fine. Fires are happening much more often than they would have in the past. The animals and plants, they aren't evolved to that frequency. They've evolved in different frequency of fire. And so they don't have in their kit bag the capacity to suddenly live without hollows.
4: And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking to Michael Clark, a professor in zoology and a fire ecologist from La Trobe University. I asked him how Victoria was looking as the fire season approaches.
6: It's looking grim. There's large parts of the state that are well below their average annual rainfall, and so big parts of the northwest and Miss and Gippsland are well down on their rainfall, so the fuels are dry and very prone to burning.
4: So what does the government need to do, and what do people need to do? Are there actions we can take?
6: I think preparedness is the obvious one. As a community, we need to embrace the fact that this is a shared responsibility. It's not good enough for us to just simply say the government needs to clean up their side of the fence and reduce the fuels while we leave our own homes vulnerable. We can all take responsibility for the land under our control. And it's got a long-term response as well as societies where we plan to put people, where we allow new developments to take place On the edges of flammable landscapes and then how we allow people to build cheek to jowl in those developments on their peri-urban fringe once a fire gets into one of those peri-urban communities where the houses are so close together the house-to-house ignition becomes a real threat it's a major long-term urban planning issue and what building requirements do we have for the houses deep in the suburb that's now stuck out on the peri-urban area, do we expect everybody's houses to be suitably rated? I think that's really important things to be thinking about when you look at the Californian fires. Once the fires have got into those kinds of communities, they've just been devastating loss.
2: Yes, indeed.
6: Really long-term leadership we need in planning and some really tough decisions to be made about whether people should be living in such places. what, What are the steps we can take as a society to make them as safe as possible and as, as informed as possible.
4: And uh, that was Mike, Professor Michael Clark, Head of School of Life Sciences at La Trobe University and a fire ecologist. And uh, as he says, long term leadership. And leadership is what we are not seeing from the federal government at the moment, head stuck in the sand on climate change. Um, it's really time that Scott Morrison took some response and his government and coal-hugging the <laughs> Prime Minister <laughs> took some responsibility and stepped up. And uh, we're still waiting, aren't we? Yep, and not listening to advice from the fireys and the people who uh, represent them and lead them. So uh, coming again, moving again into another environmental story, Um, Last week, we heard that Australia's offshore oil and gas authority, NOPSEMA, and uh, and Ella and Patty, because you're new to Monday Breakfast, you have not been drilled in knowing what NOPSEMA is, right? <laughs> you may never have heard of it yet. yet. Whereas Alice and <laughs> Dean, we all even said it together on the show. So um NOPSEMA is the uh, offshore uh, oil and gas authority, and they determine what projects will go ahead. And one of the things they will call for is an environmental plan. Equinor is the Norwegian, uh, uh, the Norwegian company that's proposing to drill for oil, explore for oil in the Great Australian Bight, that beautiful expanse of water that goes along the whole south coast of South Australia over into Western Australia. And in fact, if drilling happens in a Bight, We are also affected here in Victoria because um, that ocean, if there's a spill, we will be definitely affected. So anyway, Nopsema has asked Equinor for more information on its plans um, to consult with the community, to manage oil well pressure, prevent a spill, and also a protection for animals and creatures, flora, fauna, birds, in the Biodiversity Conservation Act. Those animals, creatures are covered by that act. So... Equinor's knocked back the second environmental plan, Uh, sorry, Nopsema's knocked back the second environmental plan from Equinor, and a lot of people breathed a sigh of relief, I certainly know I did, Um, however, Nopsema also made it clear that the opportunity to modify and resubmit does not represent a refusal or a rejection of the environmental plan. So last Friday I spoke with Jeff Hansen he's the managing director of Sea Shepherd and part of the Great Australian Bite Alliance about how the alliance was formed and what's likely to happen next to protect the bite.
3: Sea Shepherd formed a part of the Great Australian Bite Alliance back in 2015 and that was in response to BP's plans to drill for oil in the bite. We all know what BP caused in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, back in 2010, the world saw the worst oil spill that occurred in waters far shallower and uh, less remote than in our Great Australian Bight. The Gulf of Mexico, it's quite an industrialised area. Plenty of support uh, vessels and rigs to drill relief wells. Yet with all that infrastructure there, that blowout in which was an initial test drill, exploratory drilling, that took 87 days to cap the well and almost $5 million barrels of oil went into the ocean, and um almost seven thousand boats were involved in that cleanup effort. So when BP were looking at doing drilling fall in the bite we thought well, if there's a blowout, it's game over for the bite because there is no infrastructure to handle a spill, there is nothing there it's, it just be spray dispersing everywhere, and then, as quick as you can, try and get a capping stack there, which you know, a minimum of 35 days away just to get it to the area and then try and get it into a location in which was two or three kilometres down below the the surface.
4: And the dispersants themselves have their own problems, as we've seen with the Montara oil spill.
3: That's right, and the same dispersants that were used there were the ones used in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, One of them called Corexit, and that made the spill 52 times more toxic, which had a devastating impact on marine life, fisheries, the environment, and still does today. But even uh, made people sick um, just simply going down into the into the beach, and it was all covered on a big um, investigative journalism piece on uh, on 60 Minutes. But BP spill modelling showed that it could reach much of southern Australia, and then Equinor's spill modelling has further highlighted that as well. But our expedition with the Steve Irwin um, in 2016 to the bite uh, with the Great Australian Bite Alliance and, and Merning Elder, Bunalori and Peter Owen. We showcased what we would all lose if there was a spill in that region. And I can tell you the bite is nothing short of remarkable.
4: Yes, one see, of I the have motion. been there. It's, it's gorgeous, yes.
3: When we were researching this trip, looking at where we were going to take the ship, what areas we are going to showcase, places like Noit's Reef, and St. Francis Isles and, and Pearson Island, 17 kilometres off the coast, trying to look up these places, there was very little information online about them
4: we don't even know what we're going to lose because people don't know other than your film of course which we can uh, post a link to on our website there's so much there that is at risk
3: you go to places like head of bite where you've got the Nullarbor cliffs that stretch from 80 to 100 meters vertical and go for 100 kilometers long below that area you've got this beautiful turquoise ocean and one of the world's most significant southern whale nurseries and you can stand there and count 50, 60 mother and calf pairs with your naked eye. And then further out the sea, you've got deep sea canyons, the updwelling of nutrients. You've got seals, dolphins, penguins, whales, fin whales, humpbacks, blue whales.
4: Sounds amazing.
3: <laughs> you push aside the environmental risk and push aside the fact of you know where we're headed now with with our climate you know we're in the climate emergency right now globally pushing aside that just from the impacts of of the economy south australia alone the bite provides over 10,000 plus jobs in the fisheries and tourism sectors in excess of 2.1 billion dollars all yes. putting at risk for an exploratory drilling operation from a company in norway so it just doesn't up at all.
4: So, Equinor has 21 days to respond to the concerns raised by NOPCEMA. Are they going to be able to do that?
3: It's a lot of information for Equinor to provide. I'm hopeful that they will do the right thing by the Great Australian Bight where 85% of the marine life there is globally unique, do the right thing by our kids in any chance in a livable climate, and cease their plans to drill for oil. But uh, another option could be to ask for an extension for more time. We should acknowledge that NOPCEMA are, are definitely doing the right thing here and, and really. Really looking over this for the fine tooth cone because if it goes wrong in the bite, it goes wrong for everyone. It was the Australian government that granted leases for oil companies to drill for oil in the bite, And it was interesting that, you know, under Labor and Martin Ferguson, who now works for the oil and gas company... Yeah, that, that's an
4: interesting one, isn't it? The number of ex-politicians who are now working for oil and gas or other um, companies that uh, were related to their portfolios when they were in office.
3: Until that changes we're going to be unfortunately fighting these sorts of fight. The leases for instance for BP uh, were granted in just a matter of months after their big oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico.
4: Just doesn't make sense.
3: <laughs> well we shouldn't need these conservation and environment groups and communities to come together and raise awareness about this stuff you know we should have you know governments that actually put the natural world first because we're seeing the impacts that we're having on our planet we're in the sixth extinction it's called the scene by scientists because it's caused by us we know the issues with climate we can't go on living this way
4: is it time now for the government to step in and say enough equinor has been given a good run let's uh, put a halt to it
3: i wish that was has. Unfortunately looking at previous examples, woodside petroleum, looking at putting a big gas up through the Humpback Nursery off the Kimberley, looking at B P and looking at Chevron pulling out in the bite, it's never been governments that have pulled the plug on these projects. It's always community and and conservation and councils in this case putting pressure on the companies to do the right thing. And I think that's just because we have governments in power where they have a lot of political donations have come from these industries.
4: What will the Great Australian Bait Alliance be doing now while we're waiting for Equinor to come up with its next environmental plan or ask for another extension?
2: Well,
3: on the 23rd of November, we're having a big sort of National Day of Action, sending a message to Norway and to Equinor that you have no social license to operate here. There's over 16 councils opposing oil and gas in the bite and there's the community there's the conservation groups there's the indigenous you know leaders and and elders all standing up to protect our great australian bite and opposition of equinor and so there'll be a bunch of paddle outs events right around the country and those looking at getting involved can just go to fightforthebite.org.au and there's a map that comes up and they can find out how to get involved and come along.
4: And that was Jeff Hansen, Managing Director of Sea Shepherd and part of the Great Australian Bite Alliance. And uh, you can check it out on, as he said, fightforthebite, all one word, .org, .au. And see, I noticed there's a paddle out in Torquay. So if you want to get down there on the weekend and uh, yeah, and show your support, then you can do that. Um And we will put a link to Jettara, the film that was made by the Alliance, on our website, so
0: you can see what it's like out there. Just sensational. Beautiful. And the time's just gone 7:29. You're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And up next, Judith, you have a story for us on silicosis.
4: I do, and uh, we've covered this before as well earlier in the year. I think it was August um, last year, uh, no, not last, this year, August this year. We've we broadcast two stories on concerns about the increase in silicosis among people working on engineered stone bench tops. Now, a paper published in The Conversation just earlier this month is calling for a complete ban. So I caught up with one of the authors, Lynn Fritchie, Professor Lynn Fritchie, uh, a cancer epidemiologist in the School of Public Health at Curtin University in Western Australia. And her research deals with the causes of cancer in the workplace and, importantly, how to prevent them. I began by asking why she was calling on a complete ban on work with engineered stone benches.
1: Recently, there's been an epidemic of accelerated silicosis in mainly young men. The youngest one that I know of is age 23. It causes fibrosis of the lungs, making it harder and harder to breathe. And if it gets to a stage where it's quite bad, it's impossible to do anything other than to have a lung transplant or the person will die. The reason that we wrote this article was because my colleague Alison Reid has been working in the area of asbestos for a long time and she said this is just like asbestos. The evidence is there that silica causes this condition, that high levels of exposure are the things that trigger this condition. What had happened with asbestos was happening again in that a very dangerous product that we know is dangerous was being used
4: so we've known for at least over a hundred years
1: well we've known for hundreds of years that miners who are exposed to silica dust do get lung diseases in the 1930s we got to know really clearly that silica was the problem over the last decades there have been occupational health and safety measures which have reduced silica dust in most industries The problem is that we have become a little bit complacent and then this new product was brought in which has a very, very high silica content, much higher than is found naturally it was not picked up by our Oc health and safety regulators. It wasn't picked up by anybody until these diseases started happening. And then you
4: needed to look back and ask what's going on. I'm just wondering what are engineered stone bench tops? What are we talking about there?
1: So these are a new type of stone bench tops. They're very fashionable. They're much cheaper than natural stone. The material they're made of consists of very finely ground silica mixed up with some resin to keep it hard it's much easier to work with than natural stone so a lot of people who were using it were people who weren't trained stonemasons who hadn't had all that training about how to protect themselves from silica the other problem is that they're up to 95 percent silica so the dust they produce instead of being perhaps 30 percent silica was 90 percent silica
4: that sounds really dangerous to me
1: absolutely and we know that that's going to be dangerous but because it was used in small companies by untrained workers this tragedy has occurred
4: so where does this product come from like before people start even working on it and shaping it where is it made in the first place
1: there's none that's manufactured in australia it comes from china from italy possibly from Spain and Turkey. So
4: it's a new product, people were caught unawares, didn't apply the standard occupational health and safety practices. Is that what's happened?
1: That's definitely what's happened. When these first cases started coming up and people realized that they were coming from working engineered stone, there was an immediate response by the regulators in each of the states who went in and did inspections in kitchen bench top manufacturers and they found some horrendous situations The people working just were not aware of the problems and there was just dust everywhere, well above what level that it should have been according to the law.
4: How long ago was that, that people recognised that this was a problem? The
1: first paper that was published on it was published from Spain in 2012 saying here's a new product that's causing problems, they noticed it because they had young men coming in with the silicosis. The first time it hit Australia is two or three years ago when these cases started appearing and the response from the regulators was good. They immediately set up inspection programs, went in, inspected these places, put out prohibition notices, put out notices that people had to improve their workplaces immediately. That's
4: encouraging that there's been a swift response. Is it adequate? No.
1: We believe there's enough evidence to show that this product cannot be worked with safely. Even if you use wet cutting, which is when water spills on the tool as you're cutting, which obviously reduces some of the dust, even with that, the levels are still quite high. So then you need a fan as well. So you need an extraction fan that's taking away any of the dust and the water with dust in it that comes from the working with the product. But even with that, the levels sometimes cannot get below the required level in Australia. And so you need, as well as that, not just a dust mask but a respirator. And it needs to be a well-fitted respirator, it needs to be a well-maintained respirator and it needs to be a respirator that meets Australian standards. There are respirators available in Australia which do not meet Australian standards.
4: Right. And is it the responsibility of the the employer to provide these?
1: The regulations state that it has to be the employer who provides a safe workplace for their employees. So it's up to the... The employer to provide all this equipment. One of the problems with manufactured stone is that you're making a kitchen bench top and you might be working on it in a workshop that has wet cutting, that has an extraction fan and using an, a respirator, but then you put it in the kitchen and it doesn't quite fit or the sink doesn't quite fit and you need to work on it to reduce that. And there's no way that in that sort of circumstance it's possible to be well enough protected.
4: So do people have to work on that at the place that it's being in Installed.
1: That's what they do, yes. yes. I mean, I guess the alternative is to take the benchtop back and cut it a little bit more at, at, back in the workshop and then bring it in again. But we know that people aren't doing that, that they're installing them on site because, of course, it's a lot of price pressure.
4: And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Professor Lynn Fritchie from Curtin University about the epidemic in silicosis among people working on engineered benchtops in Australia over the past few years. I asked Lynn about the Dust Diseases Task Force set up by the federal government.
1: So this was set up in response to this issue of young people appearing with a disease that should have been eliminated 150 years ago. These cases, as well as cases of black lung that appeared in Queensland coal miners' Again, a disease we know about that is completely preventable. And here were people appearing on Dr's doorsteps with these diseases from history, really.
4: Yes. Have you put a submission in to the task force? Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) So what have you recommended?
1: That this should be banned. Um, This is consistent with the positions of a number of different bodies, including the Cancer Council and the trade unions. We should ban any product that is above 80% silica. If we say we need to ban this stuff, then we can find a way around all these other issues.
4: I'm wondering, as an epidemiologist and a person who works in the health and safety field, how did you feel when you first heard about this?
1: I just felt sick. This is appalling. This is a failure of our regulatory system. We feel like we've got a good system here, and we do. But it's been underfunded for a long time because of complacency, a feeling that we have occupational health and safety under control. A lot of it has been self-regulation by industries. Most of the employers try and do the best thing for their employees. There are always cases where people either don't know or they don't care. And that's why we have a system and that's why we need to fund it well and we need to get more expertise into, back into our regulators like safe work in the different states so that this won't happen again.
4: And uh, we do need to make sure it doesn't happen again. Professor Lynn Fritchie, cancer epidemiologist uh, from Curtin University. And she wrote that paper with her colleague Alison Reed, who's also done a lot of work on asbestos. And submissions to the Dust Diseases Task Force are closed on November 11th, but people can still email on dust at health.gov.au, and that report is out, uh, due out early next year.
7: What's up, listeners? This is Johnny Mac here. Just reminding everybody to tune in to 3CR at 11am each day from Monday, July the 8th to Friday, July the 12th for our special Beyond the Bars broadcast during NAIDOC. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash beyondthebars. So make sure to listen in and support our brothers and sisters until they're home again
8: to my eyes Do the old ones really try and talk to me
4: Or is it my mind playing tricks on me You're on 3CR
5: And last week I spoke to Damien Patterson who's a policy and advocacy officer with the Council to Homeless Persons, and he was discussing the public con- consultation that uh, occurred last week um, about res- res- residential tenancies regulation. And I I asked him, what were the minimum standards um, for a rental property prior to this legislation?
7: So, in practice, there really weren't. Um, there were these court cases that found that there were certain things that you could expect, but I think that um, most of us aren't going to court. You and I and other renters, we're not doing that. You really need some sort of a mechanism that doesn't require you to get a lawyer. And I think that proof of that really bears out when you look at the state of Melbourne's rental properties. So many of which aren't meeting what you and I would consider minimum standards. They're not super livable.
5: Well, what what are some of the issues that tenants face when there are no minimum standards?
7: Yeah. So minimum standards cover off on a bunch of things. So um, you know. We believe that each uh, property should have a toilet. Some 2% apparently don't. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Another really big one is the issue, particularly in Melbourne, of black mould. People are living in these properties that are riddled with mould because they're not structurally safe or structurally sound. And what it means is that they're getting sick. And we find that this does contribute to homelessness because um particularly you know if you're a part of a family and your children are unable to breathe in the house that you're renting you're not going to stay in that unsafe environment it's actually really scary if you can't breathe that's why you know we need minimum standards to make sure that a
5: house is safe for people and livable black mold a toilet what are some of the other standards that you're calling for yeah and
7: i really think that what we're calling for is really basic things um so it's a toilet, it's hot and cold water, it's an oven, um, it's a certain amount of working burners per bedroom okay. on a stovetop. Um really pleased to see that heating is included in there. Again, that will help to keep people safe, but I don't think that we're talking about these radical new standards
5: here. Definitely. Uh, so who's going to benefit most from these these conditions, these minimum standards? Yeah, and so... We really think that who's
7: going to benefit most? Obviously, they're going to be standards that apply right across the rental market. But where they're not being applied at the moment is really at the, um, both the lower price point, but particularly there is no lower price point in Melbourne. Um, it's people who face difficulties accessing rental properties. It's people facing discrimination for whatever reason. Mm. Um, they're the ones who are going to get now properties that previously would have not met these standards, they will do. So people aren't going to be forced to accept just whatever unlivable conditions. Um, They'll be
5: able to get properties that are meeting basic rights. Excellent. That's that's really good to hear. One, One question I wanted to ask you is how can the Victorian government encourage landlords to make repairs in a timely manner?
7: Yeah, and so the Newman standards are a really good way for them to do this. Um, the anytime that a property won't meet a minimum standard, it doesn't meet a minimum standard, uh, it will become an urgent repair. So you know the landlord has two days to get it fixed.
5: On that topic, my uh, my friend in her bedroom in a rented apartment, the ceiling was caving in, water was dripping on her face, and she was trying to call the building manager, the property manager, um, trying to get into maintenance the the landlord who's responsible?
7: Yeah, and so the landlord is responsible, um, and if they have delegated to the property manager, then fine, contact them. Um, But of course, we know, and I think you've alluded to it, that sometimes these urgent repairs don't get done in a super timely fashion. So another good reform that looks like it's going to come through through the, the announcement that Consumer Affairs made last week is that the, and it won't help everybody, but the amount of money that... You, a tenant is allowed to spend on a property to get an an urgent repair done is going to increase. So what it'll mean is that um you know you can now spend up to a certain amount of money and the landlord will have to reimburse you within two days. It's not an answer for everybody. Not everybody has that money sitting around. But certainly I guess in part that helps for some people. And in a, Another part it helps because landlords are at least aware of that mechanism and they're not really aware of your financial state. It does provide something of an incentive. They should be the ones trying to find the cost and work that they want done. Otherwise, they're going to be reimbursing
5: you. Yeah, exactly. So they're they're going to have to make the call as soon as they get the complaint. Otherwise, they might be facing double the cost or something.
7: Exactly, and if uh, not double the cost, because there's you know it's It's going to have to be uh, going to have to be reasonable. But sure, they are going to have to find um if they might not get the worker that they like or at the cost that they want.
5: So there was a decision in the Supreme Court of Victoria in 2016, which said that renters have the right to expect a rented home be maintained in good repair, even if the home was initially rented out in poor condition. If a person is facing eviction and they feel it's because they've asked for repairs to their rental property, where can they go for help? Cool. So I'd like to answer that question in two parts. The
7: first one being that we are so pleased to say that um, the reforms that were announced last year, that come into place next year, will mean that renters can no longer be evicted without a reason. There'll be no more no-reason notice to vacate. There will be no more 120 days, you haven't done anything wrong, but we think that probably we didn't like it when you asked us to get your rights enforced. That's gone. So renters will, from July 1 next year, not have to face that fear that if they are asking for their rights, that they're going to be evicted. So that's really exciting. In terms of where can you go for help, there are a few different places. Uh, Consumer Affairs can give you advice uh, or can give you information. If you want advice, you might go to Tenants Victoria, who are really wonderful.
5: So if you want to get in touch with Tenants Victoria, their website is tuv.org.au. And you can also have your say about minimum standards for rentals at engage.vic.gov.au. Now, what's next, Ella?
0: Uh, So coming up in Melbourne, we've got a great event on the International Day of Disabilities. Um, That's on December 3rd, uh, the Disability Sports and Rec Festival. Uh, So this is a festival promoting and celebrating physically active lifestyles for people of all abilities. Uh, So I invited local athlete Maria Strong to come in and have a chat with us and tell her what she's got planned at the festival this year. Welcome to Monday Breakfast, Maria. Thank you. And Maria, thanks for making the time to come and speak with us. You've just returned from the Para Athletics Championships in Dubai, where he placed fifth in a very competitive women's shot
9: put event. Congratulations. Thank you. I literally got off the plane yesterday morning. (laughs) And you're here this
4: morning. This is very, impressive. <laughs> <We are so laughs> very impressive. No,
9: the top six place getters all threw past the previous championship record and um, there was only 10 centimetres separating third place from sixth. So literally wow. <laughs> any one of us on the day Could have got that bronze medal. Unbelievable.
4: (laughs) I'm going to ask for your
9: autograph later, Maria. (laughs) Okay. There's probably one somewhere around the studio. I've been here for long enough.
0: (laughs) Yes, Maria's also
9: a former broadcaster with three CRs
0: raising our voices. (laughs) Uh, And an event happening a little closer to home is this Disability and Sports Rec Festival. Uh, You've attended before, Maria. Can you give listeners an idea of what the festival is like?
9: Yeah, the Disability Sport and Recreation Festival this year will be held at Crown Riverwalk um, from 10 o'clock to 3 o'clock on December the 3rd. Great, and it's free for everyone to attend? Free for everybody to attend. There'll be a number of stalls, some from sporting organisations, some from providers of adaptive sporting equipment. There are a series of come and tries, um, including one by the organisation that I will be assisting on the day, Race Running Australia. But they'll be come and try for um, electric wheelchair sports. They'll be come and try for wheelchair AFL. They'll be come and try for gymnastics. They'll be come and try for tennis. They'll be come and try for soccer. Um, so many different sports that people can attempt, um, some of which will, and there's probably something at the festival that will suit everybody.
0: Yeah, so just letting people know what the options are that are out there and what fits. Yes, yeah. great. <laughs> and now, what's race running exactly for our listeners who don't know?
9: Um, race running is the newest para-athletics discipline. It was actually contested for the very first time at World Para-athletics Championships in Dubai. Oh wow! yeah, um <laughs> the race running events were literally um start on at the exact t- same time as my shot put <laughs>
0: so you didn't get to see that one then <laughs> I did get to see oh, it did. because i
9: was I was competing right near the one hundred meter start ah perfect <laughs> yeah um, but race running is a track event primarily for athletes with coordination impairment who cannot functionally run. Um, A lot of race running athletes um, are primarily wheelchair users. Some use walking frames. Some can walk a bit but aren't steady and would face plant if they attempted to run. I may fit that description. (laughs) Um, A race runner um, looks a little bit like a tricycle. It's got a saddle, it's got a chest plate, um, it doesn't have pedals. Um, You move it with your feet. um, So it's like running, but running with a supportive frame that avoids face planting. (laughs) Excellent. And um what's
0: the importance of having events like this, um, which create awareness around disability and the opportunity to partake in sporting events, both competitively and just for fun? Yeah.
9: Um I'm old. Sort of <laughs> 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 yeah, well, I, I would sort of. I mean, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Okay, I believe I am the oldest Australian debutante in para athletics, (laughs) but I am not quite 50 yet, so some people would consider that old, some people not so much. (laughs) But what I definitely am is old enough that I was well into my 20s before I had any conception of disability sport at all. Um, I think there are a lot of people that had never heard of the Paralympics until Sydney. Um, So there's a whole generation of young people with a disability, many generations of young people with a disability, that grew up not having any conception that there were events that they can participate in and um, be successful at. Um, When I was growing up, I was a member of a mainstream swimming club I was actually pretty good, Um, but I retired because I got sick of um, never winning and often coming dead last, Uh, but I was racing um, non-disabled people of my age, which sort of makes it challenging when you have cerebral palsy affecting all four limbs. I I think that even today, people are sometimes finding out that disability sport exists by accident. Certainly, people are finding out about some of the more niche events which may be more suited to people with a higher level of impairment by accident. For example, people may not find out that electric wheelchair sports are a thing unless they know somebody that participates in them or they go to the DSR festival. People may not know that seated throws, my primary event, is a thing. People may not know that race running is a thing. And race, race running is a sport that a lot of people that participate in it can neither run nor effectively propel a racing wheelchair because a lot of the people that participate are affected in all four limbs which actually cuts down the number of sporting options significantly people may not know that wheelchair slalom is a thing people may not know that boccia is a thing so it's only by giving people exposure to these events that they can maybe say That sounds like it might be fun, and have a go. Yeah, yeah, it certainly
0: seems to be improving and there's more options available.
9: It Uh, is definitely improving, both in terms of the number of options available. Race running, for example, is very new in Australia. We had the first Victorian come and try day almost exactly one year ago. Wow. Um, Race running has existed in Europe for more than 25 years, but it took a while for it to get here. <laughs> <laughs> by boat? Yeah. Um, aeroplane, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if it was 25 years ago, yes, it might have yeah. been by boat. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
4: but it's so exciting it has arrived at last. It is exciting that that <laughs> yes. it's arrived. Yeah.
9: Um I have myself a race running frame. Um, I don't get to use it as much as I thought I might because I've just been training for the World Championships, so doing three gym sessions and and three to four throw sessions a week, which sort of takes up a lot of your time. I can imagine so. Yeah, <laughs> particularly, particularly if you're also working. Yes, yes, that makes it tricky. <laughs> um, but... I've never moved so fast before in my life than I did on a track with this race running frame. I've tried wheelchair racing. I suck at it. (laughs) Um, I don't suck that much at um, race running.
4: (laughs) It's so exciting and it opens so many options, as you're saying, for so many people.
9: Yeah, and people that may have not many options that they can realistically be competitive at. Yeah,
4: Uh, Maria I'm interested that you have just arrived back from Dubai and I know it's very hot there and I'm kind of wondering how that was for you and, and other athletes who are participating
9: It actually wasn't as hot as you might think because it's approaching winter in Dubai Therefore, it was only about 30 degrees oh. instead of about 50 degrees. <laughs> um, and my, my event started at six o'clock. So it was wow. somewhere in the 20s when I was actually competing. Um, I am very glad that I was not competing at Able-Bodied World Championships in Doha in September particularly not in the women's marathon, where half the field didn't finish because it was so boiling. Oh, my God. <laughs> and how hot was it in Doha, do you know? Uh, a little bit hotter than in Dubai. <laughs> I don't know that it was dramatically hotter. I think it's just that, that people were attempting to run marathons and do 50-kilometre walks in um Temperatures I mean, it
4: could, it in the 30s. Could, it could have gone up to 40 easily, if not more, I think, yeah. in Doha.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so it's great to see that there are more options out there. What do you still want to see done, Maria?
9: I would really, really like um, people to have more exposure to parasport in schools. Um, School Sport Victoria makes contact with every single school, um, saying that yes, there will be multi-class events on at the swimming or the athletics or the whatever it is. That information doesn't necessarily get passed on to the athletes and their families. So there are, I've, I do a little bit of coaching within schools. And I have met um, kids who've done their school sports, done reasonably well, but not well enough to qualify as a non-disabled athlete, but then not progressed um, beyond their school sports to districts and zones and states where that might have been an option for them. I... There's also um, some of those niche sports. It would be good to get more publicity to the people that those sports are the appropriate sport for. Um, It's very exciting, though, um, to see, for for example, in Little Athletics that there are now multi-class events. That was a new thing for the first time last year. So we've had two years of medal events within little athletics for, um, athletes with a disability. I know that when I was in about grade six, um, somebody came to visit my school and said, come join little athletics. And it's like, but if I had, I would have come dead last, um, in every event. Whereas, well, um, I'm, now the I'm now the Oceania record holder in the F33 seat at Shotput. It only took me until I was in my 40s to work out. I was pretty good at that. Slow and steady wins the race. <laughs> yes, yeah, slow and Actually, that's something that's cool about Parasport. There is a much wider age range of people at the pointy end than you expect. Um The youngest person in my event was 15. Wow, that is an incredible yeah. range. The, <laughs> <oldest, laughs> the oldest person in my event was 48. That might have been me. Um, the, but the oldest person in the championships was actually a Japanese seated thrower who was 71. Amazing. Oh now, is,
4: what wonderful stories you brought back for us. I mean, it's so great to be... Um, uh, hear more, to understand more, to hear the affirmation of you know the work of the, the, the participating in those sports.
9: So anybody that's listening to this that um, is interested in participating in sport, you are probably not too old. <laughs> um, even if you're not at the competing at the elite level, there. Masters is a thing Masters is fun That's right too Yes yes. I do a bit of Masters swimming As well (laughs) And yeah It just sounds like
0: It's about finding The right fit
9: Yeah It is about Finding the right fit And um, For those of us Who have um, A disability That means That they can't Participate in some Of the More well Publicised sport That there are Extra barriers To that
0: Yeah Yeah I can imagine So now, I'm afraid we are going to have to rough up, Maria, but just quickly before we let you go,
9: I'm anxious to know, what's your ideal pre-comp breakfast? I am very lucky in that I'm a thrower and not a distance runner <laughs> um, and not a sprinter. Um, so throwers can get away with um, eating pretty much what we want within reason. <laughs> I think on the morning of my competition, I... Um, had some scrambled eggs on toast, one piece, but I also might have got one of the waffles that they were serving at the hotel um, with caramelised banana. Mm, Breakfast of champions, (laughs) for sure. I guarantee that the runners were not eating waffles and (laughs) caramelised banana on the day of their event. Um, Quite a few of them, however, went for um, big binges of ice cream or chocolate, after their event, but they had to help hold out until after their event. Oh, that's, <laughs> tough. that's tough, that's tough.
8: Yes. Advantage,
9: uh, advantage of being a thrower, um, so long as your basic nutrition basic is okay, <laughs> you can get a little bit more freedom. Yeah.
0: All right, thank you so much for coming into the studio today, Maria. It's been lovely.
4: And to just remind listeners to turn into 3CR on December the third for our annual 12-hour
9: disability show. And if you would like to try race running, you can go along to the Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. Um, There'll be a stall there the whole um, five-hour period. There's also a come-and-try. At lunchtime. That sounds fantastic.
4: And, uh, yeah, great to have you. Thanks for coming in from Dubai to 3CR Monday Breakfast Studio. It doesn't get better than that. (laughs) Thank you so much, you for coming in. And now we're about to, I think, go across to a phone call with Eddie Sinod. But uh, it's been wonderful having you here. And you're on 3CR Monday Breakfast, and the time is... About 8.02... Uh, welcoming Eddie Sinot um, to our show this morning. Uh, he's a, an academic lawyer, an indigenous man, a Womba Womba man from western Victoria, southwest New South Wales. Um, and uh, he's also manager of the Indigenous Law Centre at the University of New South Wales. So a few weeks ago, he wrote an article for The Conversation entitled, Ken Wyatt's Proposed a Voice to Government. Mark's another failure to hear Indigenous voices, and he's joining us now to explain why. So welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast, Eddie.
10: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
4: And, yeah, thanks so much for, uh, you know, being available this morning. And um, you say that the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Ken Wyatt's proposed voice to government, fails to hear the invitation of the Uluru Statement from the Heart uh, to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Can you tell us Tell Tell us well, tell us first, just remind our listeners about the Uluru Statement from the Heart and the process that was engaged in in developing it?
10: Sure, not a problem. So we've been in this kind of current constitutional recognition process for, for about a decade. Uh, there's always been a, a push to achieve reform or recognition at this level. But um, some uh, people may remember the former Recognise campaign. There was a lot of discomfort in the community about what Recognise was about and what they were trying to achieve. Uh, and out of that process, um, a number of community leaders met with the then Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, and Opposition Leader, Bill Shorten, um, to express that concern, and the referendum council was born out of that. And out of the referendum council, there was a process, uh, that went around the country. Um, so a number of deliberative dialogues were held over, uh, three and four days. And that provided a, um, representative cross-section of Indigenous people across the country to be able to have their say about what they felt was important about the constitution and recognition and about moving forward, um, you know, with the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And then out of that process, there was the National Convention in 2017, uh, which ratified what had happened at at the regional dialogues, and that issued the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And the core uh, kind of aspects from the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which were voice treaty and truth, or the the voice to Parliament to be enshrined in the Constitution, and a Makarata Commission to oversee a process of treaty and truth-telling.
4: So there was an extensive um, consultation, I think, it was, was it across 16 groups or something across Australia?
10: Yeah, so there were 12, 12 dialogues so made up of um, 60% of traditional owner groups and then other organisations and then individual invitees. And importantly, they were run and administered by the local communities themselves. Um, so there's been a bit of you know conjecture about as to who was involved and who wasn't involved and all that kind of stuff. But there was a representative cross-section uh, that was involved It included dissenting voices within the community as well. And yes. importantly, it enabled the uh, participants to be able to be informed about the process to, to express what their concerns were and then to be able to deliberate and vote on that together.
4: Yeah, I mean, so we, it was extensive and engaged people right down to the grassroots level by the sound of it.
10: Yeah, it definitely
4: did. Yeah, and what was the feeling in the Aboriginal community when it was finished? Like, what was the feeling when the statement was produ- came into being?
10: Uh, well, uh, for, from my mind, I, there was a lot of hope and expectation about the future. That, um, the Uluru statement is couched in that kind of language. It recognises, um, you know, some of the things such as the torment of our powerlessness, powerlessness, sorry, but it doesn't go on into the list. You know, all of those things. It talks about our children and, you know, the place of their and our communities and their future. But it was also issued to the Australian people in the hope that, you know, not politicians or government or, you know, people like that again, but the Australian people would walk in that movement, you know, for a better future tomorrow as well. So there's recognition of the past and the troubles that are there and, and the things that need to be overcome and need to be fixed. But there's also this. Um, great expectation and hope that Australian people are able to overcome a lot of those things too and help Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people achieve these changes.
4: Yes, and I do remember uh, seeing when I was looking into the story that you know, there was a lot of um, pe- you know, pe- leaders from across Australia who welcomed the statement and were really very excited about it. I mean, people, you know, from the mining industry, indigenous organizations, um, leaders in politics, it was not only were the people, as you described, you know, happy and hopeful about it, but many leaders across Australia from all different backgrounds embraced it and said, this, this is a great thing. However... Yeah,
10: definitely. Yeah. And we've, seen, um, we've seen that support. You know, grow and um, grow from strength to strength since then, despite um, some of the unfortunate things that have happened, i guess officially with the government um, at different times, but that support has continued to grow, and that 's exactly the reason why the statement was issued to the Australian people and not narrowly just you know to the government or to politicians themselves
4: yes, and that's so important that you know it was an invitation to Australian people to walk with us it was' it's so important, but the Morrison government. Does not, didn't support the statement, I gather. And the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Ken Wyatt, in his speech to the National Press Club in July, st- sought to diminish the work of the people involved in crafting that statement. Is that your sense of what's going on?
10: Yeah, so it's not necessarily that they don't support the statement. It's um, the concern is that they've attempted to water down or, or what the, the kind of co design process that they've started at the moment. Is watering down uh, the reforms that were called for by the Uluru Statement for the Heart, the reforms that, um, you know, myself and others that are involved in the process believe have wide community support as well, and that's the specific aspects of of constitutional enshrinement and actual voice to Parliament. So what we've seen, uh, we had the Joint Select Committee last year, which was a bipartisan parliamentary um, group that included members of all of the political parties. It recognised that the Uluru Statement from the Heart um, was a game changer and that it was, you know, the way it provided the pathway forward and that this co-design process that had since begun um, was supposed to be about designing the voice to parliament and then looking at enshrinement in the, in the constitution after that as well. And what we're seeing since then is, uh, I guess, a watering down of expectations. The Minister himself has said constitutional enshrinement is off the table and that they're looking at a voice to government, not a voice to parliament. And that may not sound like a big difference uh, to a lot of people, but um, for myself, who you know is a researcher and an expert in this kind of field, I believe there's a big difference between a voice to parliament and a voice to government. Um, government, at the end of the day, is supposed to be responsible to parliament and parliament's where yeah, we want to be able to have our voice heard as well. And, um, and so
4: sorry, sorry to interrupt there, Eddie, but I also um, think good. it can be a point of confusion for people. People might not yeah, think there's definitely. much difference between a voice to parliament and a voice to government. So can you just outline why why its proposed voice to government is deficient and a step backward?
10: So a voice to government uh, would effectively be um, an improvement or trying to tinker with and improve the current bureaucratic processes that are in play. Um, but it would be simply be to the government. so the government would be able to um, you know have that voice table within their own mechanisms. there's no uh, transparency or accountability with it being tabled in Parliament or being accountable to, say, the opposition or other parties within Parliament as well or to the Australian people. So there's kind of two main kind of principal aspects from, from my mind. The first one being that government, um, whilst, you know, they are in power and they get to make the decisions, they're ultimately accountable to the Parliament and that's the kind of accountability and transparency that we're looking for. Um, But then the second part also being that it would just kind of continue the current bureaucratic structures that we have and it wouldn't actually change anything. So you may be able to tinker with it and improve it to a certain extent. But one of the key things that came out of the whole statement from the heart was that everyone on the ground felt that the current bureaucratic structures are failing them and it wasn't simply a matter of being able to improve them but of having to fundamentally change them. And that's what the voice to Parliament provided.
4: Yes. And, uh, I mean, I think it's uh, imp- so important that there is that voice to Parliament and also within the Constitution. I mean, not having it in the Constitution al- feels to me, and I do apologize if I'm totally off the mark, but it feels to me like it's going back almost uh, to terra nullius, you know. It just, uh, it doesn't give credit. It doesn't acknowledge. Uh, that's my feeling, yeah, at least. And it.
10: It doesn't, it doesn't recognize what is an original issue for, for most Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is that there's still this unresolved question over the, the foundation of Australia and, you know, how it all happened and and how we got to here. Um, to a certain extent, for those that may be aware of it, the the Mabo decision, um, that recognized native title turned that over a little bit, but at the same time, it didn't, question that original foundation which for a lot of Aboriginal people when you hear them talk about sovereignty and treaty is still a key question and then also comes down to the fundamental respect and understanding that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have in our community. Uh, if something like a voice to government um, was to get up we mu- you know I would much prefer it to be a voice to the parliament if it's not protected in the constitution then any future government can just remove it and we've seen this happen in the past with Yes,
4: again and again and again. So what needs to happen now? I mean, what can people listening do, for example? What can we all do to make sure that we maintain a voice to Parliament?
10: Well, definitely um, continue to participate in the conversation, even with this current co-design process and, and the current mechanisms that are going ahead. But make sure that um, you know the people out there are expressing their support for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander self-determination and the Uluru Statement from the Heart, yeah. and saying you know whilst you know we don't want to be excluded and we're going to participate in this process, but um, the Uluru Statement from the Heart was very clear—a voice to Parliament, constitutionally enshrined. Um, we believe that support is out there in the community. And just like on other similar issues such as same-sex marriage, we believe the community is well ahead of the government on this and that the government isn't necessarily representative of what the Australian community uh, thinks or believes on this issue either.
4: Yes. Well, I I would agree with that definitely, Eddie. And I just want – we're running out of time, but I want to thank you very much for coming on the show this morning. We really appreciate, uh, uh, you know, being able to take advantage of your knowledge and your insights and particularly the difference between a voice to to parliament and and a voice to government and what that difference actually entails. So thank you so much and great to speak with you this morning.
10: Not a problem any time and thanks for having me on.
4: It's a pleasure. Okay, thank you. Okay, and that was...
9: Tune in to Power from the Margins, 3CR's broadcast for International Day of People with Disability on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we'll feature BIPOC perspectives, live music, artists and discussions. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2019.
4: and uh, that was Eddie Sinot, uh constitute who's um sorry uh the manager of the center in Aboriginal Law University of New South Wales so important to keep the, these issues in front of our minds as we go forward right now and uh, now also on the phone we're going to be hearing from Fiona Patton uh leader of the Reason Party and uh, she's founder and leader of the Reason Party, actually, and uh, also a member of the Victorian Legislative Council for the Northern Metropolitan Region. Last week, the Reason Party and the Greens in Victoria made history by tabling a co-sponsored bill, introducing a two-year or proposing a two-year pill testing pilot in Victoria. And uh, Fiona, welcome to 3CR, and thank you for joining us this morning.
11: Thank you, Judith. Good
4: yeah. morning. And uh, i am just got to ask, is this the first time two parties have co-sponsored? Is it really the first time two parties have co-sponsored a bill in a single house in the 163 year of the Victorian <laughs> Parliament?
11: I know. It, it does seem extraordinary that um, there has never been a co-sponsored bill by two separate parties in the Legislative Council before. Uh, because I had sort of thought maybe with the abortion bill that that had been co-sponsored by different parties. But no, this is absolutely the first. And I think that that probably shows the, the importance and, and the relative urgency of, um, of getting a pill testing trial up in Victoria.
4: Yes. And, uh, you know, wh- why – so how did this collaboration come about? Like, why did the two of you get together to discuss, um, you know, the, the pill testing proposal?
11: Um, it was an issue that both our parties have been campaigning for for a number of years, so we were in lockstep together on what we wanted to see, what legislation could and should look like. So it did ultimately make sense to to sort of join forces and and I guess have that have a little bit of that strength in numbers. To, to really to really push for for this legislative reform, and you know if they weren't going to do it, I was going to do it, so it made sense to do it together. Yeah, so, I mean, I think on top of that, probably, probably if we, you know, it it, it took quite a little bit of um, quite a few co- conversations with the clerks in the parliament to work out how what the procedure would look like for such a uh, such a, such cooperation. But I think if um, you know if if we had our time again, we would there would be probably another two or three parties on the crossbench who would have signed up to co-sponsor the bill. Well, that's, so that's good
2: enough. news. <laughs> that's... It,
11: look, yeah, I mean, I I think the vast majority of us in this well, we know this, The polls show us that the vast majority of Victorians want to see this trial. They know that. Continuing down this path of further strip searches, further sniffer dogs are not going to make young people going to festivals safer, or any of us. Whether that's when we, you know, heading out for a good night in Chapel Street or, or Smith Street. Yes. Um, so, this so type of behaviour doesn't help.
4: Yes. So Fiona, can you just tell us more about the bill itself? What will it do?
11: So the bill itself um, provides for. The opportunity to have a mobile uh, testing unit that would travel to festivals and operate from festivals where um, where we know that illicit substances are consumed and that there is a there's a there's a risk there there would also the bill also enables for a fixed site testing station to be established so that people could at any time of the year uh, have have substances tested there, in both places, and I think this is obvious. Well, for me, this is the real magic. It's the education that surrounds that. So sure, someone gets a substance tested and they're told what's in it, and you know, if it come, if, if if what's in it surprises them, generally we know that generally people change their change their behaviour and that that leads to not taking the substance but it is the education with the health professional. So it's that conversation about, you know, what the effects of this drug are, what the effects of this drug might have on any other medication that person may be taking, the effects that it might have uh, if they take it with alcohol, if they take it with any other substances, uh, the effects it will have on them personally, looking at their weight, their size, their experience. And this is very often the first time anyone has spoken to a health professional about using uh, an illicit substance.
4: Yes, I, I mean, obviously. And as you said, you know, it's been around before. I mean, it's been happening internationally with great success yep. for I think around 20 years, if not more than that. And why right. why has Australia been so slow to take
11: it up? I, it's so disappointing, Judith. You know, we if we, well, you and I remember, but back in the late 80s, early yes. 90s, when... Yep. HIV and AIDS hit our shores. Australian governments across the nation were brave, courageous. We immediately set up um, AIDS councils. We immediately set up needle and syringe programs. We acted, you know, saying, look, what we need to do is keep people safe and we need to do everything we can to do that.
4: Yes, and when and, we engaged with people—the people on the people who were using drugs, people, right. you know, uh, sex workers—I mean, all that dialogue right. happened in developing those policies. Very important.
11: That's exactly right. We understood that peer education was was absolutely crucial in getting um, safe sex messages out there, in getting uh, safer drug use messages out there. That. We needed to work with the community. And at the moment that the community is calling and, you know, and, and you know, calling for governments to allow some form of better drug education through pill testing into our drug-using communities, and fentanyl is sitting on our border. And when I was in Canada a couple of years ago, we saw fentanyl in... Ecstasy. We saw they saw fentanyl in cocaine. They saw fentanyl even in cannabis because.
4: And, and fentanyl has been causing huge number of deaths in North America for some time now.
11: That's right. It's a, yeah. it's a very 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 strong opioid, and it also has has a sister substance called, substance called carfentanyl, which also is very strong. So just the smallest amount can cause someone. Uh, to, to to overdose and to effectively stop breathing. Um, and it's killed tens of thousands of people in the U.S. and in Canada. Yeah, and so so is this a- is
4: a really good moment to bring in pill testing. How, how important was the coroner's report in New South Wales, which recommended oh. pill testing as well as decriminalizing drugs in, in your decision to go ahead with this bill?
11: That's it, I mean, it's, it's, it certainly did give us further strength for our arm, but, but we know that the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, the Royal College of GPs, the Royal College of Physicians, Emergency Doctors, uh, the Ambulances, the Ambulance, um, Union, there, there is not a single, um, there is not a single health expert in Australia that doesn't support a pill testing trial and now we've got the new south wales coroner saying if you want to keep young people alive this summer you need to take a different approach yeah and and, and you're, just, you're sorry and yeah and i just hope that um that our premier and and our opposition will actually say you know what let's give this a try this is what the experts agree we should do Uh, We as politicians should be listening to evidence, should be listening to the experts, and let's give this a trial.
4: Yes, and uh, just on a more kind of mercenary question, how (laughs) how much is it going to cost the government if they go ahead with this, if the bill is passed and they take up the proposal?
11: So it's estimated we um, had it it, uh, costed by the Parliamentary um, Budget Office, they estimate that this would cost around three million dollars over four years. Now that's a, that's probably at the peak. You know, what we know in in other jurisdictions, even in Australia like the ACT, we've got volunteers, we've got philanthropists, we've got organizations saying we will do this for free. We right. want to that's save amazing. Yeah. So there is such willingness out there from the the medical community, from the harm reduction community to get this going, uh, that um, frankly, I think the money, it would be money well spent, but I suspect it actually would come in quite under the budget, the, the amount that the, the Parliamentary Budget Office costed it at. Again, you know, if we look at, we, if we saved six lives. Would that be you know? Yes. Obviously, you know, I I don't think we can put a cost on a life, but what we know in other jurisdictions is that this changes people's behaviour. It makes them safer. Uh, It, you know, people take less, consume less drugs. Yeah, Australia is the biggest ecstasy consumer in the world. So, what we're doing now is not stopping people from using from using substances.
0: I'm just wondering. So, support from a lot of uh, places, but where does law enforcement stand on
11: this? This this is probably it's a very good question, and it's I would say it's our stumbling block. The police have consistently opposed this, saying that it sends the wrong message. Um, and I, you know, I. Uh, my blood, my blood, kind of starts boiling these days when I hear it sends the wrong message. Because, as I say, you know, how much evidence say, do they need? <laughs> That's right. And just say no has not been sending the right message either. You know, it hasn't stopped people from from experimenting and using illicit substances, and it hasn't stopped people from getting very sick as a result of that. What has stopped that is education and pill testing and. We've seen that in the jurisdictions where it's been trialed. So, yeah, sending the wrong message is not good enough of an argument for me.
4: Yes. Well, Fiona, we're going to have to wind up because we're coming to the end of the show. But uh, thank you so much, first of all, for making history. And I'm I'm tempted (laughs) to say again, (laughs) making history bringing this forward, this bill. I mean, so important with summer coming and the festival season arriving. And uh, all the best with the work you're doing there.
11: Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Nice to speak to you both. Thank you. See you. Bye.
4: Bye. And that was uh, Fiona from Fiona Patton, who's the head of the Reason Party. Talking about the the bill that uh, has just been co-sponsored by the Greens and Reason to um, um, trial until pill testing program in Victoria for the next for a two-year period, and I think there's also suggestion providing the trial goes well. They'll introduce then a, another a four-year program. But, look, you can look it all up uh, on the web. And uh, we've had some fantastic people on the show this morning, 3C hour Monday breakfast. It is coming up to about 8.28 if you're needing to get out and about and doing things. And uh, we'll certainly uh, be posting our on our website a lot of information about the talks we've had this morning. So it has been wonderful to have your company Coming up next, we're going to have women on the line, but just a, a quick rundown of who's been on this morning.
0: Uh, yes, yeah, so we had Maria Strong in the studio with us today.
5: Yeah. And I spoke uh, to Damien Patterson from uh, CHP.
4: Yeah, we did. And uh, I spoke to Lynn Fritchie about the, um, uh, well, it's been called now an epidemic in silicosis and, and what needs to happen to prevent that uh, in the future. Uh, we heard from Michael Clark about uh, preventing, about fire ecology generally and the need for us all to be aware. I mean, we all need to be informed. I think that was the message from Michael this morning and, of course, uh, Jeff Hansen on the Great Australian Bite. And there's, there's lots of things to be aware of. I think Torquay's having a paddle out this weekend. You can find that out. And tonight the Free, the Bomana 53, the people, the refugees in prison in uh, in Papua New Guinea. And we spoke last week, uh, we t- spoke about the refugees, the situation and the re- medivac Well, it's apparently quite a few people in Bomana, where they're getting very little information, we're getting little information about them, have been uh, recommended for Medivac. So that's on tonight at the Nurses' Union, 355-35 Elizabeth Strait, if you want to find out more about that, 6.30 tonight, so do get along. And uh, also, I just want to say this is my last Monday breakfast for a while. I'm going to be travelling and uh, yeah, on the road and around, and uh, but won't be here for the next few weeks. And uh, I'm not sure yet what that's going what's going to evolve from all of that. So big thank you to all the listeners, people who phoned in about stories we've done. And I'm heading over to a fabulous team. And Patty, Ella, and Alice will be here next week and I already know they've got some great stories planned. So, uh, yeah, tune in to Monday Breakfast, and uh, I'll see you anon.
9: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find NIBS in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.